are things that are specific to your body and those things um, you know are, are gender specific how you like to be penetrated or if you like to penetrate and you know the, the specifics of that that's one set of circumstances um, how within that set of circumstances that is your body you bring fullness to your body or aliveness to your body is one of the explorations that we are um, having here right so how much relaxation can you have in your body for the sake of sensation right? which is one of the big big themes the tighter you are the less you're going to feel which means you won't feel as much pleasure and you certainly won't feel another person because you're too contracted to feel anything in the extreme sense so that's a very just uh, specific to your body exploration it's not men do it this way women do it this way there is certain aspects of relaxation that enliven both a male or a female body and um, it's really about the relaxation aspect and how it heightens perception of, of sensation so that's that then with, with, within the, 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 the thing we just started, which is um, erotic tension, so to speak, sexual tension, erotic tension, the principle that really is the most important is just how to be different. And so one of the things you've probably noticed when you both vigorously moved and both made sounds and both touched, that there was a lot of sameness and sameness isn't particularly erotically charged it might be interesting and playful but it doesn't produce very strong tension because there isn't two poles now you can both move and you can both make sounds and you can both make touch in different ways and then the more different that offering is between two people, the more sexually exciting it is. And some people have that very strongly, where just the natural expression of, uh, of one person's movement was much more um, static than the other, or one person's sound was very deep and the other person's sound was very high and you know high pitched uh, one person's movements were were very slow the other one were fast or one touch was strong the other was soft so it's really difference that creates the erotic tension who does what doesn't really matter right? it's just that most people have a natural preference and in that natural preference they either to say it very bluntly like to be fucked or fuck as a natural preference and so there'll be people who are more likely to want to you know be taken and other people who more likely want to take but within that there's a huge spectrum of experience um, that you can play with on how to create the difference for the sexual tension so if you um, enjoy both being with women and with men there's probably still, maybe not, that's for you to, to you know, flesh out, there's still a preference if you want to be the one who surrenders or the one who, uh, who initiates the strong penetration. And then, with, so that, that's your natural preference. And then you can still um, work with exploring the other end of the spectrum so that you can do both so that you're fluid, so it stays interesting, so you can go back and forth. But you'll have a, a you know, a, a kind of a felt preference that, that is what you would want to do. Yeah. But within that, once, exactly, once that's clarified, then you also know what you can offer somebody else who's compatible with you, who isn't. It's a re it's really, really good question, and it's very apropos with what we're doing here because things are not as simple anymore as all dudes breathe into their balls and are present, and all women are in wild, chaotic flow. Right? Those, those days have come and gone. Uh, and if they were here at all, right? But you've got to start somewhere, and and so this is a much more dynamic exploration within which you can both find your home base 
and a wide variety of, so to speak, artistic expression. Well, one of the things about these explorations, you may have noticed we're not doing an awful lot of talking or explaining or lecturing with PowerPoints and whiteboards and things like that. <laughs> and there's a few reasons for that. Because these things uh, are happening in the body. And to learn in the body, you have to do it. You, know, you have to embody these things. In other words, basically just doing them, practicing, getting a hang, hang of it, being confused and then finding some reference points and then realizing they're all wrong and finding new ones and so on. Learning, right, in the body. So that's why we do a lot of physical things, a lot of exercises like we just did here for a little while. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that there are many possible strands of inquiry in any one situation or exercise. And there's a bit of a danger in saying, uh, okay, everyone, this is what you're supposed to feel here. All right, this is the purpose of that. This is the reason for that. I'm going to give you some reasons, don't, you know, but it's a bit dangerous to do that because uh, it's an imposition. So rather than facilitating exploration or inquiry, you're actually just imposing new layers of dogma and rules and do this and do that and so on. And when people start trying to do that, it's generally a bad, a, a bad, it's a good red flag when someone's trying to tell you this is how you should fuck, this is how you should breathe, this is how you should stand, and so on. It um, says who, you know. So there's a bit of a difference between that imposition and inquiry. But uh, having said that, allow me to impose myself. <laughs> you know? uh, a little bit anyway. I'll try to be as uh, ambiguous as I can. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there's lots of reasons. I'll just list a handful, and these are by no means exhaustive. Um, I, I, I pointed one out when we were doing it, which was that in movement, at least, let's talk about movement, when you are going to the extreme ranges of, of the stretch, you create lots of tension and hold in the muscles. A lot of times mobility is not about lengthening the muscles, it's about releasing chronic nervous system hold. And so a lot of aggressive stretching, uh, for instance, to release the neck doesn't tend to do it really, creates this protection. The nervous system has to hold against the aggression and the ambition of uh, the person to protect the joints. Um, that's one thing. So there's the possibility of release. Also, the problem with strong sensations when we're talking about sensitizing, which was the momentum of what we were doing, we were sensitizing, is that it's a bit like going to a rock and roll concert, loud rock concert, with um, men at work, is it, you have here? Um, and... Uh, <laughs> that was 30 years ago. Was it? <laughs> Never mind. Uh, you know, with whatever it is. And, um, and uh, someone's talking to you as well, and you can't hear him. Because the level, if you want, is set so, so high that there's a whole world of auditory sensations beneath that level that are drowned out by the strong sensation of, the, of men at work uh, come from the land down under, so on. So if you were then to take, go to a library and, uh, and that person was to talk at the same level, it might even be embarrassingly loud. Same level, same pitch. Rather, when you feel strong sensations and you go away from them, for instance, in the turning of the head from left to right on the back, it creates this downward spiral. Downward from the gross to the subtle from the loud to the quiet. And you become more sensitized, you become more able to feel what's already happening. That's another reason that we do it that way. That has all sorts of implications. The movements we're doing, the actions we're doing can be compared to any action or movement. Whether it's a relationship action, you do in relationship or communication action, or even the activity or the action of the ego, if you wanted to go that far. You know? That's why yoga is self-inquiry not self-improvement. Because what you'll find is what's there. So I can't guarantee, if you want to feel good, that this is a good idea. Mm. If you're looking to feel good, then sensitizing, well, it's a dicey proposition. Because what, you might, what you're going to feel is what's there. You know? So if you're looking to medicate yourself, 
uh, as a lot of people do in yoga classes, with very strong sensations, releasing the endorphins, very aggressive pranayama and so on, without proper preparation, which is often what's done. You get a high. You know, it's a masking of micro tears, injuries, you know, L5s, you know, going out and so on, hip replacements, rife in yoga teachers, you know, really is. Things like that. Um, then, you know, it feels fucking great until it doesn't feel great anymore. But anyway, this is this idea that you'll find what's there. That's the inquiry part of it. That's another reason. That's another reason. Um, I could go on and on and on, but those are two of the reasons. With the relaxation stuff we were doing, it wasn't about relaxing, because you could go out there and see a car crash and suddenly you're tense again. So have you, have you undone all your good work? No. It's about becoming acquainted with how these things work. How does relaxation and tension work? How does sensitizing work? What is the gross, the subtle? Feeling all these different things. Actually feeling them. Not kidding yourself, visualizing your chakras and your, you know, your, all this sort of bullshit. You know? Actually feeling what's happening. Yeah. Okay. In position over. <laughs>
lotions and potions. That was my career path with 12. And uh, I set out quite vigorously on, on achieving that. Um, and um, obviously, a few things kind of played against me, one of which was my parents weren't completely down with that idea. <laughs> and also, you know, there's no education for that in the classic sense. Um, so I decided probably with 13 or 14 that I'll become a doctor. And then as a doctor, I could heal people and stuff like that, talking about healing. And um, however, my parents did have... Um, the good, the good sense to not squash my ideas, but to support them in a way that I could explore things, which they were still are incredibly good at. So they sent me to a woman who did herbs and, um, you know, like a wild, uh, what, I don't know, what do you call it? When you source, you know, uh, herbs from out of the wild, pick them, learn how to identify them, make them and things. So I, I studied with her for a while and quite uh, regularly, I'd go there four or five times a week in the afternoon and she taught me a lot. And she then sent me to the woman who became my teacher, my, you know, my first real teacher. Uh, and I started with that woman when I was 16. And, you know, when you're 16, um, I mean, you probably remember, you think you know everything. And, <laughs> and, and uh, it's quite, um, it's, it must have been quite hard teaching me with 16, 17, 18, because I was very opinionated back then and absolutely convinced that I knew what it all took. So this particular woman very much taught in the vein that you described, you know, with, uh, uh, with very subtle uh, and very roundabout ways of me learning and discovering things. And I was never told uh, why I did the things I did. And I actually barely ever questioned it either, interestingly enough. I don't know why, but... So she did these random things. So she taught me these seemingly random things that only now, you know, many, many years later, I go, ah... Yeah, this is how it fits together. I'm still finding these things out. And I'm still having moments of, oh, I never realized that. Uh, so that's how she taught me, is by uh, me having um, explorations that she left completely as they were, without ever tying them together, till I actually had the, uh, the maturity and the background to make sense out of them. And Hence, I own them now, so to speak, right? in, in the way that they are deeply ingrained in my system and in my body, and I never even think of them. Uh, many of the things um, that, that happen during teaching or even in my own you know, life, I, I don't go, oh, let me do this. It's just how my body and how my mind and how, you know, how I'm built these days. So when, you, when we talk about this method of teaching, um, I have to say that what you are getting now or what you're experiencing now and, uh, in the, and maybe in the last year, year and a half is a result of that early training coming to fruition in, in, in many different ways um, and also having done the other thing. I started out uh, when I became a counselor really thinking one could heal people. And people's lives could really get better. And if they would just know this, then everything would be fine. And um, as never one really f very strongly for self-help per se, but I certainly believed that um, therapeutic modalities would make people's lives better. And on one level, that is certainly true. Right? If you break your leg and somebody puts a cast on you and then does physical therapy for it, that will make your life better because you can walk again versus not being able to walk. But uh, on another level, I've realized that um, people's lives don't fundamentally change regardless of what they do with it. It's just different modes of trying to make it better. So you know, how well somebody eats and how much they exercise and what the sense of their relationship is and how much, um, you know, they do for their body or don't do for their body doesn't really, really change things in the big picture, which was quite disillusioning when you imagine that I've spent so much time counseling people. And then I realized 
at some point in my career that there would come a certain point where people would just um, ruin whatever they've done in, in, in the realms of progress uh, just to go back to the equilibrium that they were in before. So you'd, you know, you'd, you'd work with people for a year and their lives really got great. And then they do the very thing that would destroy it all. And there was nothing I could do. I could see it coming. I, you know, you could see the trajectory, but there was nothing that could be done to prevent it, which was a, a very sobering experience and certainly made me quite cynical for a while in the, in the realms of therapy. So that all said, um, also, you know, in, in, in traveling and teaching uh, the way I did for, you know, the past, whatever, 12, 13 years, um, I don't know how to say this uh, in, in, a, in a proper way. I've realized the benefits and the downfalls of giving people um, the the result of that particular realization. So, so one of the ways that, that one could say that is once you realize that there is intricately nothing that makes anything better, you could then just go, well, why don't we give people a nice experience? So they come to a workshop, we'll give them a nice peak experience. They can't sustain it anyway. Uh, but, you know, let, let's just make it feel everybody, like, let's just get them to their edge, or it, which is extremely prevalent, right? You go to a workshop, particularly when it comes to Tantra and stuff like that, and um, you, are, you are blown open in a certain way, and you have this massive state experience, and then there's no integration. Um, and that's a common theme in a lot of workshops, and I certainly am, uh, you know, by association guilty of that, um, having participated in, in, in that kind of way of thinking, um, where you just assume that maybe it opened people a little bit more than it had before, and then maybe they do some things that, that create that kind of integration so it's permanent. And somewhere around the time when Steve and I started working together for a, a few different reasons, but certainly with his influence um, predominantly, I realized that there's another way of going at it, which is what we're doing now, which is to provide an actual um, somatic physical education instead of uh, piling on theory. And therefore allowing the body's natural desire for you know, optimization and well-being and homeostasis and all of those kind of things to um, assist the learning and allow for some physical um, and with that also emotional learning that then over time, and sometimes you, know, you don't know what just happened and then six months later you're like, ha ah, ah, ha ah, ah. ha you have a totally, and people report this in longer courses, where people go, oh, wow, I no longer, I used to do this all the time, and I no longer even do this. There was a guy the other day in a, in a workshop, he said he realized six months into the second men's group he did that he hadn't smoked weed in six or seven weeks without noticing. And this is a lifelong pot smoker, lifelong meaning from whatever, he, when he started, uh, he's in his 40s. And it, he didn't even realize he hadn't smoked because something so substantial had changed in his relationship to, to sensation. He didn't have to do the thing anymore that he did. So this is my long-winded way of saying my realization was not an, uh, a, spon you know, a big aha uh, this is how we do it, and from here on out, this is how it goes. It was more a very gradual things coming together in a different way, where I then also, uh, when Steve and I started you know, designing workshops together, remembered a lot of the things my first teacher did for me, which was exactly this. I spent the first, you know, I'm, I'm um, what you would call the classically, uh, classically educated tantric initiate, um, and my tantric initiation was literally three years of, of sweeping before anything else happened. Right? I made chai and I swept. And I swept and I made chai. Jeden Tag. Jeden Tag. <laughs> Every day. Right? Uh, and, and there was no 
oh, you're progressing or this is why you are doing it or anything else. Only when I had given something up, when my sweeping was empty, so to speak, was I given anything that was even remotely sexual in its education. Uh, because that's how she did it. And till this day, um, my go-to, uh, not, not even consciously, but my go-to way of um, emptying out, or however you would want to call that, is housework. It's washing dishes, it's cooking, it's sweeping, it's, it's uh, doing things of a very, very, very mundane nature that um, just wipes me clean in a certain way. And so there's a long, circuitous way of saying, I didn't have a moment of realization. It's just something that's come um, over time. And that's, um, uh, interestingly enough, in this last, I want to say, two years, has come to a kind of a, a fullness where all the different things that I've been exposed to made sense either in, a, in influencing it positively or in seeing how certain things that I accepted just as the fact are actually not true for me. They were true for other people who I got them from. And then came the moment of going, well, there's other ways of going at it. And that's where we are now. So. The state pumping approach create um, psycho-emotional reactions as well as biochemical reactions to give you the sense of having gone somewhere and done something. And it's, um, it's, it's usually marked by uh, profound discomfort. You hear people talking about showing you your shit and stuff like that, you know, confronting your shadow, things like that. Going to the edge. Going to the edge, this sort of thing, you know. It's, um, it's uh, not comfortable, usually, except for the person who's, you know, telling you to do it. <laughs> They're quite comfortable in the knowledge that Telling you're too fucked up to ask anything about it. Doing it with you. Yeah. This is very common. Yes, yeah. guys, hold, hold horse dance for half an hour while I sit here and pour my tea. Very common. Very common. <laughs> and the other thing to be said about that state pumping thing. Now, there is, there is you know, you definitely, in order to uh, um, work within this realm, there will be uncomfortability and things like that. But there's a big difference between the uncomfortability of whatever, what did you do yesterday, getting up and down the floor and struggling a bit with the confusion that your body has in learning a new pattern and the uncomfortability of uh, driving yourself to the edge of a previous injury. And in the tantric um, teachings as they are done in the West at this point, not all of them, I don't want to throw everybody in there, but often um, people's sexual and emotional trauma is being leveraged very strongly. You barely see, any, see as many fucked, sexually fucked up people in one place than in a tantra workshop. Right? Or on the team teaching the tantra. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so... Um, Having, you know, having a strong background in, in trauma therapy, and uh, I ran a drug rehab for a while, you know, an alcohol and drug rehab. Um, I know a thing or two about using spiritual endeavors as a way to uh, whitewash trauma or, or, you know, pick the scab again and again and again and again, but this time your, you know, your guru is the one violating you. And hence, it must be a lot better than when your uncle did it. But it's the same, it's the same um, momentum towards keeping that, that kind of system going. It's aiding people in their self-abuse at that point. I can say something briefly and then you can uh, correct it. <laughs> um, uh, well, it's a bit of a situation. You have a few... Um, if you have a certain uh, constellation of fixed points, then you're in trouble. One of the, if one of the fixed points is um, the no or that you don't want to do it. So you don't want to sort of compromise yourself. Let's just put it like that. You don't, you don't, you don't feel like it. 
Another fixed point is you want her to react positively to that, then you're in trouble. Um, and there's a further fixed point, which is you don't want to discover her, discourage her from making future sexual advances in this case. Well, um, they um, don't necessarily coexist. They can't necessarily coexist. In other words, it could be that if you say no, she'll be pissed off. It could be that if you say no, she'll withhold sex for a while as a way of training you punishing you so you don't say no again. You know? um, it's possible. So then there's the question of where do you uh, draw the line? Are you willing to compromise yourself in that way, sexually in this case, in order to uh, ensure further compromising situations? I don't know. You know that's something to think about. But uh, or in order to keep the peace, let's say, keep the emotional temperature okay, so basically keep her all right, compromising yourself, cutting away bits of yourself. Um, if you're able to do that, willing to do that, then that's one road. Uh, it, the other road, of course, is that you don't do it if you don't want to do it, and if she doesn't like it, that's, you know, you can be polite about it. You, know? you don't have to say... Not today, you know, whatever. You don't have to be an asshole about it, polite about it. But if you're reasonably polite about it, best of your ability, and she kicks off, who does that say worse about? Flip the script. Something that's really good to do, especially as a guy, is to flip the script. If you were doing that to your partner, pressuring her for sex and so on, so that she sort of went along with it and felt like she was always giving a little bit of a piece of herself away when she comes in the door because you just can't fucking wait for your fix when she comes in the door. You've just got to get at it. Get, you know, she's got to get off you know, when she comes in the door and she's your girlfriend after all and she doesn't want to fuck you off she doesn't want to make you angry because she thinks well if she has to go and take a shower or something you know, once a bit of time then you'll get angry and she doesn't want to make you angry because then who knows what, she'll do, what you'll do to her you know, that sort of thing um, uh, maybe you can get a taste of it as I'm describing that scenario it would be pretty horrifying wouldn't it to be in that position of, of being that kind of a person but if that sounds like, I don't know your specific situation or if it's even real or hypothetical, it sounds like what you're describing from the other side. Who's, who's, getting, who's getting a gift here, really? If you have to accept it, otherwise it's all shit goes south, who's the one who's really being fed there? You know, it's uh, not you, certainly, because you have to eat it, whether you want to or not. You're not hungry, you've got to eat it because I cooked it for you. I didn't ask for you to cook it, though. It doesn't matter. I cooked it for you, so you have to eat it. But, I'm, but I've just eaten. It doesn't matter. You know, I cooked it, so therefore it's your responsibility to eat it because I'm giving you a gift you didn't even ask for. You have to take it. It's a little bit crazy. But of course, I will, the caveat being, though, if you decide not to do it and to say to do rather what you want to do in this sort of an area rather than what you feel obliged to do, it might tank the whole thing. It might tank the whole thing. Until you find somebody who can hear no without that, uh, you know, being the automatic reaction, you know, possibly. But flip the script a little bit. Say, what if I was the one doing this to her? How, and these were her thoughts. You know, usually the reaction is just you recoil so, so strongly from the thought of even doing it. You, it's so disgusting. And that's the purpose of the no exercise, really, to bring up questions like that, to bring up the patterns of, oh, I don't like to say no because uh, this reminds me of when I don't say no over here. It's part of, it's part of it. Part of it. There's lots of different Yeah. Things. I mean, so, so one of the things to consider, right, in the vein of what we just talked about here is that how you can educate your nervous system, let's say your body, your, you know, your, your system to, um, um, you know, strengthen certain things or have certain skills, have certain abilities is you have to repeat things over and over and over and over. If you learn an instrument or if you learn tennis or whatever, you have to do it again and again and again and again till your body becomes capable of making that movement. The same is true with a no. If you and most people have, right? It's a, it's a very tricky thing when you think about the fact that your parents essentially train you to not say no to them, right? We're all raised to comply no matter if we want to or not. 
with the understanding that our parents know better than we do and have the best, our best, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, welfare in mind. And so when they say, go and clean your room, you have to say yes, because that is better for you than what no would entail, right? Um, that's the st there's a sane aspect to it. Of course, not everybody's parents are completely sane. And um, often mothers uh, raise their boys to comply to their wishes um, in a way that's not quite that healthy. Right? And so in, in more ancient and in, in, in that way, more civilized times, boys were taken from the influence of their mother at a fairly early age and taught to assert their own judgment and feel things and all of that. But that's not how it is in this day and age. So you are, I, I'm, I'm speaking specifically to you as a man now, but that there's other aspects of that that apply to women equally. So you are somewhat trained to fear a woman's negative response to you um, asserting independence, right? just by the mere fact that you were raised by a woman like most guys were. And that um, when you are young, you don't have the luxury of really asserting your own ways. Um, and so you've learned how to acquiesce and do things so that there wasn't emotional drama. Right? And most women are very, very good at educating their men, their, you know, now, now as girlfriends, uh, in the same way. You know, it's somewhat easier when you acquiesce because there isn't that much trouble. And so most guys have learned uh, to do that. And then, you know, that, that's not your particular issue, but I'm just saying this for the completion. Then we get into the whole territory of, uh, you know, worship the goddess or whatever, you know, is the current rhetoric. And there's a whole um, belief that women can be as crazy as they want to be and men have just have to learn how to breathe that in and deal with it and, and uh, make that happen and worship the chaos in a completely batshit crazy chick. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and so that's the extreme end of the spectrum. Now, there is a place for all of that, but there's also a place... The trash. <laughs> 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 it's in that special place from hell, two, two doors down on the left. Yeah. So, so that all said, though, the, the, once again, it's a very, the, the reason I'm, I'm pulling it a little bit apart is because it's so prevalent, right? Because on the one end, women go, well, be a man. You know, have a mission, have a purpose, assert yourself. We want a warrior. You know, everybody's looking at the dude doing the haka as if it's like porn. Uh, you know, and oh my God, and he's so uncompromising. But at home, we want our men to comply, right? So it's, it's a real mind fuck um, when you go down that rabbit hole. And the only way to work with that is to know that if you want to, you can say no. But it's all, am I still attractive? Is there another woman? What's happening? You know, there's all kinds of shit that goes down in, in, in a woman's mind, even in a sane woman's mind. Uh, you don't have to be that crazy to wonder when things change in, in the sexual department what's, what's happening. So you have to be prepared that when you say no, all of that kicks in. If you can keep your heart open in the midst of that, meaning you don't also shut off from her, it's going to be confusing in a good way because she'll go, oh, he's still as deeply loving and open and maybe even more so than usual because you're not having to shut down in order to perform the act that she once performed. It's not like you don't enjoy it and all of that. It's not but you didn't exactly get there by your own free will in, in that moment, right? Maybe two hours later, you'd be all over her, but you never get to get to that point because you never get to actually unwind and, you know. You know, last thing I want to say about that is uh, you've met my parents, of course, right? My father, for um, his entire working life, would come home from work, and even though he had two small children and a wife and whatever, would go straight from the garage into his bedroom, close the door and stay in there for an hour. And that was non-negotiable. For my whole, as long as I lived home and as long as my father worked, that's the way it went. And 
only then would he come out and then he would be completely available. And so I had, uh, you know, amazing times with my father, even though he was in a very high stress uh, work situation, because he didn't come out till he could actually engage. And if you are living with somebody and they they're all over you, um, and that's not the way you want it, you'll have to just kind of institute something like a rule that says, look, when I come home from work, I need X amount of time before I can engage. So either, I don't know, are you living together? Yeah, so then don't have her come over till later. That, that's the, more, the, the most practical things. If you're not secure in your no yet, um, back her off for a few hours. Right. That's the, that's the, the, those are the crutches, right? Till you are capable of asserting that no, um, even if she's there. So maybe it would be nice if she'd be there and cook something while you, I mean, this is super stereotypical when I say it like that. But meaning, and, and, you know, she doesn't have to cook something, but maybe she wants to be somewhat domestic and play house and give you things and gift you with things, right? Where she can do that somewhere where you are not involved. Uh, yeah, well, so let me just rephrase the question to make sure I got it right. Yeah. Um, you're saying that you notice you, you don't tend to have much contact with your exes. Um, and you're wondering, um, is that going to prevent, or is that, going to, is that a sign of uh, unresolved stuff that because of the contact you can't, because of lack of contact you can't resolve it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it seems to be the case that um, d- it depends on how the relationship ends, what sort of relationship it was, and who the people involved are. You know? um, if you have kids, for instance, together. That's a different set of circumstances. You have to have contact with that person to raise the children together. You know? mm. uh, other times, though, if it's just someone you're with for two, three months, you know, maybe you never see them again. You know? or I don't think um, uh, either circuit, there could be clean breaks that are best for everybody. You know? And uh, a lot of it depends on the, the situation and the circumstances, though. I wouldn't say there's an absolute correlation between contact or lack of contact and the amount of unresolved stuff that's carried out of a breakup. You have to kind of look at it more. What was the goal in the context of the relationship? Right? So with some people, you get into a relationship and it's like this intense, romantic, passionate, explosive thing. And, you know, you have a thing going on and it's specifically for the sake of sexual engagement or maybe it's specifically for the sake of creating a certain kind of a relationship. And when that falls away, there isn't much left. Right, that there's just not that much left. Because if you get with somebody specifically to have sex and... Um, great adventures and then you are no longer having sex or great adventures there's not much there's not anything left there and as Steve said if you are you know building a family and then for whatever reason you can no longer be together but you have children or you have a business for instance right you 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 created a business together or you know with property together there's other contexts involved that could sustain even when the romantic sexual stuff goes so I wouldn't say um, not having contact with your exes is a sign of dysfunction, uh, except for when there is a distinct pattern that appears again and again and again and again. You know, like for instance, uh, one of the classic ones is a guy gets super excited about a, a girl, promises her everything, right? Ropes her in very deeply. They're already, you know, fantasizing about the, f- the first children's name, and then he gets really tired of her really quickly, and then you know, cuts it off, and then comes the next one and the next one, and, and I have. I know people like that. She's the one, right? And the same way the other way around, women do that too. When you see that your breakups have a certain pattern and it's always the women being pissed off in a certain way about you that makes them never wanting to speak with them again, and they pretty much all have the same complaint, that's probably something to look at. But um, 
in most cases, in a breakup, the first thing you want to do is cut all ties, including communication, if you can, simply so that you can start feeling yourself without that other person and you can um, define your boundaries again and see where you're at and mend detox your heart, patterns. detox the patterns, you know, do all the crying you have to do so you can move on. So the letting somebody down easy is never a good idea unless you have children and you have to. You have to be adult about it. But uh, a period of complete, um, you know, no contact is always good. And then if from there you feel that there's something left to cultivate <coughs> because you were just really good friends and you had a great time and you had a good laugh or something, well, then maybe, but chances are pretty good that for those instances you have friends and the people you were with romantically aren't really in the friend category, with a few exceptions. And for women, often, you know, just being reminded of somebody that you once loved very much or, or in, and had sex with and all of that, who's now moved on to somebody else, is intensely painful. You don't want to see that shit. Yeah, you really don't want to. There's no part of you, even if you're completely done with that guy, that doesn't go, ouch, well, on some level. Even if, if she's very happy for you, you don't want to see it. It's just, ugh. So most women, if they have a little bit of sense and they're not into the you know, chronic picking of the scab, they just move on. It's hard to say these things because, uh, first of all, I don't know the, the details of the hurts, but I can tell you certainly both from having counseled couples for so many years and having been in the same relationship for over 15, married for 12, I think. Um, there is no way that two human beings in any form of relationship, but certainly in a, in a marriage, the two human beings can live together and, and do things together and not hurt each other tremendously. Uh, and you don't do it on purpose, of course, I mean, unless you're you know, that much of a masochist that you married a total asshole. But most people don't set out to do that. It's just shit happens. And even if you're really careful and you're really loving and you don't want stuff to happen, shit goes wrong. And shit can go substantially wrong, as we know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, it's inevitable. And one of the things of a committed relationship, whatever kind of relationship f form that takes, is that in a certain way, um, you have to allow those hurts to heal in their own time and continue with the general purpose and thrust of the relationship and trust that there's enough goodness between the two of you that other things can occur. Yeah. Because one of the things that often happens when hurt happens is everything congeals around the hurt and everything else is, an ev is evidence of more of that. And all the goodness that is there isn't, isn't perceived anymore or isn't dwelled upon. Uh, it just all goes into that hole. It all sucks on that injury, which is normal because an injury hurts and where it hurts is where you put your attention. Once you're out of the hole, your, your best bet is generosity. Like your, your best bet is the generosity of your heart, where you almost automatically, you have to train for that, assume um, the best, right, or give the best, or give the leeway or uh, extend a little bit extra. And uh, that goes from everything from making that extra cup of tea or taking that extra walk down the steps or uh, opening that bottle or, you know, like really, really, really simple things, not from a place of martyrdom, but from a place of actual generosity where you just know you've, you've committed to this person, you love them, might as well, right? might as well. Um, stinginess is really the, the thing that kills a relationship. Any relationship, not only a love relationship or a sexual relationship. It's when people withhold 
just because they can't be bothered or just because they're a bit lazy or just because they've always been stingy and what does it mean if I do that? There's, yeah, you want to make sure that there's proper precedence, but once once you're a little bit down the road in a relationship, precedence of each other's love and you know commitment has been established, and then generosity is your way to go and humor. You know, hu humor is the other one. Yeah. There's so many different ways that one could go at it. The, the thing that I was going to say before Steve reminded me of something else to tell you is um, I had the uh, fortunate, unfortunate experience of um, losing my closest friend uh, who was, aside from uh, you know, my husband, the, the, my go-to person, and uh, in, a, in, a, in a very tragic, uh, fatal accident. And um, uh, when I look back at that relationship, which was very uh, uh, influential and strong and, and you know, a uh, big part of my creative life as well, um, the only thing that I regret is uh, the, the stinginess in that relationship. Uh, and that's the only thing I regret, is that certain things weren't said, certain things weren't given, certain things, because, you know, you had to keep a certain position and a certain relationship and everything going. That's really the only thing left uh, that I go, wow, that was entirely unnecessary. You know, that much positioning or that much keeping things, you know, so that it wouldn't go off or, you know, all of that. Uh, but the other fortunate piece in there was that it put a lot of stuff in my own relationships into perspective. Because when you look at it from the viewpoint of it could be over any moment, and you aren't giving another moment to say goodbye to somebody for granted, you know, it's not for granted. It does make you a lot more generous and a lot more uh, aware that you don't leave the house in a half. Right, you don't you don't withhold the goodbye and I love you and whatever else, um, you know, because you, you're just having a little bit of a mm, because you could leave and never see that person again, uh, literally, and and that that straightens out a whole bunch of stuff if you ever so often start looking at that, but to be very practical between the two of you because you have such a busy life. And because you have small children, um, very much like we did in that one evening assignment for you, it probably would be a good idea to ever so often decide uh, to pull it apart a bit. Right? Where, where you say, okay, well, the kids are in bed. I don't know, you know if that ever happens. You know? <laughs> um, or, or, you know, I'll take the kids, go for an hour. And, and, then, and, and, and make it so that you start having a little bit of individual time, aside from being parents, before you come back together as a man and a wife. Yeah. That would be the one practical thing I would say you want to build in, is a little bit of time, so that, when, so that the time you're spending away is not reactionary time. Right? Where it's not like, oh, fuck. I can't deal with this for a moment longer. I need space, right? Which has, once again, what we talk with Johan, the no, the closing of the heart with it versus going, you know, let, let's take that space before it becomes a reactionary turning away from each other, which is inevitable when you have two kids on you all the time. At some point, you just had it. Uh, so the prevention of that goes a long way. There's two approaches. You can say, well, do this magical thing and you'll be more relaxed when you get back together. You know? um, but it uh, doesn't, as you say, when it comes down to the game or the battle or whatever, doesn't tend to survive the, the, the more pressing pressures of things that need to be done. It's all very well and good. You sit and do your thing, whatever it is, but there's other things that need to be done. Mm -hmm. So um, the best um, uh, bet is some sort of um, s small uh, habitual thing that can accrue its benefits over time rather than uh, 
Never mind. Panacea. <laughs> you know, ra rather than like a one, uh, you know, special practice or something as you could do. And it could be uh, something as simple as taking a walk um, over there and back again. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. But uh, usually, if, is the, if it's the accumulative effect over time of that has quite a positive effect. Because mm -hmm. sometimes you don't have very much time. Not because you're a bad person who doesn't prioritize the relationship, because you just don't have much time. There are other things that need to be done. There's a squeeze. So when you can reclaim something of that and just start walking that path, uh, whatever it is, going on your walk or doing whatever, whatever it might be, you know, then uh, it, it's small enough that it doesn't tank the whole day, um, but it's uh, something of a solace that you can come back to again and again. And typically, especially if you're doing it regularly, 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 small regularly, you're, it, its potency increases over time because you're used to it. Mm -hmm. you know, you're used to um, getting in. It's the same, well, I don't need to make it more analogies. You get used to it. And it becomes easier then to drop into more the solace of, of the thing. It just depends what it is for you. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I would say about that, actually. Realistically, something that could be sustained, something like this. You know? mm -hmm. And Mika as Michaela was saying in the other question there, if, if you can uh, give each other space, you know, carve that out, but that's not going to be regular. That's going to be very, very regular. Maybe you could, you're the sorts of people that, that could do like a Saturday morning is, is your morning. And, well, yeah, maybe some people do, do that, but it's not, um, that doesn't tend to really super, super work uh, in real life with most people, but some people can do it that way. Um, but uh, that's nice to do as well when you can do it, but something, uh, a habitual thing is good. Mm -hmm. And as for the high adrenaline sports, you know, if you don't, if you want to do them and you don't do them, you know, you've got you've to get it out somehow. You know, it's a chicken and egg situation. Does it rile you up? Yeah, of course, it riles you up. But um, uh, it also, you know, gets it, you know, get, you've got to get your juices flowing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, you've got to, if, if, you, if you're the guy with a lot of juices to flow, you know, you're the kind of guy with a lot of, like, vitality and uh, energy and passion and fire or whatever you want to call it in your, in your system, just the way you're built, and you don't get it out there and you don't do your motorbiking and your stuff like that, you know, within reason, then, uh, you know, you probably go mad, you know, you know, you know what I mean? You can't change, in a certain sense, your temperament, fundamentally. You want to have a thrill, you, you'll get it one way or another. You, if you stuff it down there, you probably have, you know, not be a very, very good idea. But, um, once again, everything has its costs. So you just weigh those, yeah, you just weigh those. But I don't think it's a problem to go motorbike riding, what do you think? <laughs> I know what you think, but I know. Not at all. I know. <laughs> no, uh, and you know the way you look at it is, and uh, is um, if you do these activities and you are blown out afterwards, um, then you know might want to look at it. Blown out, as in not able to cope, uh, fried, right? Um, super tired, not the, ti not the righteous tiredness of having had a good run or, you know, played rugby or something, but like, uh, that, and, uh, you know, short trigger. yeah, exactly. The nervous system tiredness, then you might want to just rest for a moment. But, but a lot of guys, you know, they're just built and you are certainly built that way. Um, you just physiologically speaking, you're going to have to run a lot of energy till things smooth out. So there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's a good thing to do, but as Steve said, having something very, very simple that smooths out the spikes on a daily basis uh, would be an additional thing. And so whoever, so how you go to work and you stay home, is that how it goes mostly? So you come home to the spikes of whatever happened? Yeah, but, but so you leave the house, she's at home. Just practically speaking, whatever you want to do for yourself to bring yourself into actually being able to meet what happens at home should be done before you come home. Because if you park the car and then decide to go on a little walk, there will always be something that is immediately required of you. Because it's also not fair to her, right? Because from her viewpoint, she's been holding down you know, the, the, the fort all day. And then when you come home and go, 
oh, I'm going to have a few beer and uh, hang out. And you, you just deal with it for another hour. Probably not going to go down well in a high-stress situation. But if you, um, I don't know, pull over ha 10 minutes before, before you get to the house, six-pack in the car in that case, uh, take a quick walk, have, a, you know, have some time, and then come home and you are available, she's not that, it's a different story. Right? So that's just something to keep in mind from a psychological aspect, that no matter how much intellectually she wants you to have a break, actually when, when, when two kids are screaming and raising hell and you go into the basement to have a beer, it's not going to go down very well, you know, even though intellectually she's completely down. But if you do it before you come home and you're home 15 minutes later uh, and then you are available, that's a different story. Well, if you're the eternal caretaker and it's all about the other person feeling good, you only have one choice, really, which is you do as they want or they will leave you. Right? And that's essentially a martyr position to put yourself in because you're pretty much saying, I will have to do whatever this person needs so that they stay with me, uh, which of course puts you in a spot where your personal needs are not really taken into account, hence then you feel overwhelmed and then you probably go and enjoy other people's energies who are feeding you because you're depleted in your relationship, blah, blah, blah. Right. So that's, that's the thing to know is that you um, continuing that particular pattern will leave you eternally depleted. And you have two choices there. You can do triage, which is that you replete from other sources or by yourself. Or over time, you learn the mechanisms of asserting your own needs in conjunction with other people's needs. Yes. Right. So the real practical work to be done there is to learn proper boundary setting. That, you know, it's a skill. It will not um, uh, alleviate the underlying always there pattern of your, you know, the tendency how your love goes. But it can certainly, you can certainly learn a new skill set that you can overlay on that particular mechanism. You know? And, um, um, you know, when I still did, did, did like, counseling this was this it's a cur it's a very very prevalent theme you're not yes. the only one dealing with that and so one of the things that i would have people do uh, which was very trite but very very effective was i would make people say no regardless um, of the circumstances in areas where it wasn't particularly um, scary so, you know, it's a little bit like when you start working out in the gym, you might start with five pound weights and then only 10 pounds. So y y there's no use in trying to teach you how to say no to a woman in a really dicey situation. You won't be able to do it. That's like a hundred pound bench press if you've never bench pressed. But when somebody in the supermarket says, uh, um, you know, whatever, in America, it used to be paper or plastic, right? And, 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 and you would say paper and they gave you a plastic bag, developing the ability to say, no, I actually wanted paper. Will you repack that? Or sending something back to the waiter and say, I didn't want it like that. I wanted it like this. My tea is cold. Can you bring me hot tea? You know, like all those tiny, tiny little things that are in itself inconsequential and that in your mind you go, ah, it's not worth dealing with that. And so that's how you train. That's, that would be the appropriate training. It's not particularly therapeutic or psychological. It's just training to train yourself over and over and over and over to assert a personal need or a boundary. And as time progresses and you become more capable of that, you'll up the weights. Naturally. Naturally, yeah. yeah. You'll notice, and you'll notice, and it goes very quickly. Uh, it was very quickly where things that um, felt 
like you were transgressed upon flag and can be resolved immediately. Uh, and that's, that's the skill set that eventually will allow you to say, no, not like this, uh, to the woman of your choice. Because mm. the, the flirting, and not only, I mean, it's always nice to have different energies and stuff like that, but in your case, it sounds that the flirting and the dispersing your energy is a little bit of a way to replete the depletion that's caused by the relationship where you bleed out. So you get a blood transfusion somewhere else, and then the woman of your choice goes, you know, why the fuck are you getting blood from over there? Yeah. <laughs>